0: Welcome back to In These Strange Times. We hope that you have enjoyed the past three episodes of the podcast focused on intimacy, innovation and long-term implications for youth. And this week I'm going to be chatting about the role of design in crisis management. So stay tuned to hear Lucas Garvey speculate upon the future of visual communication. And don't forget to keep an eye on Science Gallery Dublin's website and social media to get involved in future episodes. Welcome to episode 4 in these strange times. Today we are looking at the role that designers play in times of crisis. So the pandemic has highlighted bad design in a number of areas, including our health and government communications and in our cities and homes. And good design flows effortlessly with users unaware of its excellence, but bad design definitely stops us in our tracks. Asking why isn't there a solution for this, I am chatting to Kieran Aguera, director of Zero-G Design Studio in Dublin, and Mark Newey, a Canadian artist who exhibited as part of Science Gallery Detroit's 2020 exhibition, Future Present, Design in a Time of Urgency. Uh, Kieran, as a director of Zero-G, you have been involved in a number of public sector and government-led projects, and you were even involved in the brand identity for the Science Gallery, actually. Um, And these projects require a high level of expertise and accountability. Can you tell our listeners a bit more about Zero-G and how the studio has achieved this over the years?
1: Yeah, thanks very much, Tara. Yeah, Zero-G, we're a design studio based in Dublin. We work with uh, a lot of Irish clients and also international clients based in the States. And our area of practice focuses on identity, uh, primarily identity for organizations. uh, And we also look at communication strategy with them. And uh, while we work with a lot of uh, private business, we've also worked, as you say, there with the likes of Science Gallery and Trinity College. We've worked with the Abbey Theatre over the years. And in recent years as well, we've done quite a bit of work um, with the Irish government. And that is everything from we worked on the centenary for 1916, back in 2016, which was politically quite sensitive to make sure that that was framed in a way that was not about victors or heroes, but really about the plurality of, of history and people's experiences. We also worked on government initiatives like Creative Ireland. And I think what led us to working on uh, the COVID communications uh, for the government was an identity uh, system that we developed for government about two or three years ago, which was about introducing design standards to bring coherency across multiple government departments the 17 different departments and multiple agencies. Uh, But they should and can at times come together and work for the public good rather than be working in silos. So a lot of what we work is, our work is really using design to bring organizations together and make their activities more coherent and to offer them guidance.
0: And I guess there's a lot to be said for the importance of design and shaping people's behaviours and we saw this play out negatively in the UK when the government released the Stay Alert Save Lives campaign, which the co-owner of iMagazine referred to as a brochure for bad, a very bad wellness clinic. So how do you incorporate human behaviours and strategies into the studio practice at Zero-G?
1: Uh, well. Design is a very broad verb or noun, depending which way you want to look at it. Um, And when we talk about stay alert, save lives, and we talk about those elements, what I'm wondering is, is, is it a critique on the content or is it a critique on the form? And in these type of scenarios where it is public health emergencies, where there's a complexity to it, there's an urgency to it, there's a whole series of different aspects to how the government responds, of which communication is just one. You may find that the actual designers, the people giving form and expression to the policies that are designed, you may find that they're primarily focused on the formal elements and that the content aspects of that are being defined by civil servants or by politicians. So I think in those, it's really important for us to understand what is the actual agency and role that a designer has in a complex emerging pandemic scenario. The role that we had was purely formal, where in very compressed periods of time, we need to work with members of the government communication team to translate complex information into very simple messages Uh, that could connect with the public and, and reassure them and provide them with information in certain directions. And there are multiple design agencies that will be involved in that. So prior to our involvement, the HSE were involved in communication around very direct and immediate instruction around public health and what people could do, you know, washing their hands, keeping distance. And I think it might have been Zinc were the design agency on that. I'm not 100% sure, but they were working with the HSE or with the Department of Health. We were working directly with the Department of Antishoek around messages that were more around the broader societal reassurances uh, either around business support uh, community support and ongoing aspects of either the lockdown or opening up or things like education and leaving cert so in a scenario like this there isn't one designer being an author and one person commissioning it and then there's been an evaluation of how creative or expressive is that design starts to operate at the level of a system that is trying to bring a degree of continuity and coherence to what is a very challenging situation uh, we produced a piece of design self-initiated piece of design um, a few years ago called the map of the state and this was in 2015 and ireland has been around for nearly 100 years as a state the nation has been around for years because a nation is a cultural construct that exists in people's minds based upon myths and narratives where a state is a physical thing that's established by a constitution and it has structures And our observation is that people in Ireland and most countries don't actually know the structure of the state. And so we created a map that looked like a geographic map that helped people to try and get their heads around the legislature, uh, the uh, executive, the judiciary, and how these things relate. And they're very complex systems that have built-in areas of ambiguity, and they need to be. There's separation of various different branches of government. So they're complex organizations. And when you see something like happening with a a pandemic that draws upon multiple aspects of this organization at many different levels, it's not one person. It's not one thing.
0: Yeah. And so when you first started talking about that, I kind of got the idea that uh, the design, they don't look after, like, say, the the wording of uh, maybe a slogan that's going to be released. But then as you kind of kept talking, it it kind of depends, does it? Uh, They're complex.
1: It's a complex scenario. It's very interesting to look around the world at the dynamics of the narrative. But you look at, say, Sweden, and there's some very interesting things written about Sweden uh, and how Sweden sees itself as a society and the Swedish model and the sense of the belief in the people and the sense of how they come together. And that was reflected in an approach to the pandemic that was seen to be very different to the UK and Ireland and other countries who were shutting down and where the state was saying, okay, this is what we're doing in order to protect ourselves, whereas the Swedish state was saying, well, we don't need to impose that because we know our people will always make the right decision. And that narrative played out very successfully, and countries like Ireland were looking on nervously, wondering, God, are we doing the wrong thing? And then history starts to play out that, well, actually, the Swedish model and that approach is not actually... uh, maybe what they thought it might be. And reputationally, you get this shift in terms of the degree of authority that the citizens afford the people in power because it's a balance unless you're in an authoritarian country like China. And therefore, the communications are about trying to modulate this appropriate degree of authority. You are looking to us for clarity and assurance and that needs to be balanced with the right level of empathy, which is we care and we know that this has real human impact. And so, how you balance that will shift depending on the mood uh, of, of the population and upon the, the, the degree of certainty and clarity that the people making the decisions have. So, if you look at the press ads over the course of the last 12 years or 12 months, and you say how much yellow ink has been used to represent these are immediate health based instructions and how much might be white or green or other colors, you're starting to see an ebb and flow of the ongoing discussion and debate that's taking place as regards, is it about the economy and society? Is it about health? Is it about what? And what we see is that it is never just one thing. It's an evolving situation and how you communicate is reflecting
0: them. Mm, For sure. Wow. Um, And Mark, going over to you, um, I imagine the situation in, are you in Ontario at the moment?
2: Yes. uh, Windsor, Ontario, which is just across from Detroit,
1: Michigan.
0: And uh, it's quite different to Ireland and the UK. Um, A lot of our listeners are based here in Ireland. So I would be interested to hear how the government has approached the situation over there.
2: Yeah, I think like most governments in the beginning, there was a lot of uh, hesitancy and kind of like uncertainty, like trying to figure out what, was actually going on canada is kind of a special country in the sense that our population is tiny and our geography is vast so there's a kind of a different attitude i think and also in in canada you've got uh four or five big cities like toronto gta maybe has seven million that's the biggest and there's maybe one or two vancouver calgary montreal that are you know two million or something like that. Uh, so it's not a very big country. Um, when I when I go back and I think about, I wasn't involved directly in the uh, in, in the way Kieran was with the the kind of the design response to the the pandemic here. I was am more of an observer. Um, I would say that uh, in Ontario has a very conservative government. They just sort of like went behind the wall uh, and sort of uh, that's the way I felt anyway as a um, citizen. On the federal level, the, the, the government um, was actually really generous. They went for this near universal basic income solution, which was super helpful, I think, and uh, really compelling uh, case use to see how how that type of policy unfolds. So the Canadian federal government uh, gave a quite a, I would say, generous sort of COVID recovery benefit, like a form of unemployment assistance uh, to people that um, was pretty broad. It kind of smoothed, moved over the situation nationally. And then the provinces were sort of like left to, to handle. And for the most part, I feel as though they've kind of dropped the ball in the sense that there's like, they're, I, like I said, Canada's pretty big, so it's spread out. So there's not really a sense of urgency for getting vaccines to people at this point. Like I'm 48, I'm scheduled to get my vaccine in August. In terms of responses, it's basically kind of like everyone kind of hang back and we'll, we'll, we'll give you some money in the meantime. But, and then the, the graphic design response, I think uh, what's interesting is I can, I can relate to what Kieran was saying as far as like uh, uh, looking at the media environment and seeing what's coming out and uh, coming and going in terms of, you know, how the government is explaining the pandemic to the people. In Canada and the United States, from an observation, it's been very kind of inadequate. I feel as though in general, design culture in North America is quite lacking. Like we don't have, a, we don't have the same approach or sense or appreciation of the design in general, I think that say you get in Europe. It's a very broad statement, but I think overall, if you go outside of the main centers in North America, like you'd be hard pressed to find. It's mostly like box stores and uh, like a vinyl LED, b- a backlit signs everywhere. So, um, in terms of COVID response in Canada, I think it's it's been more like a we'll just sort of like use our size, use the fact that people can separate, just sort of like wait it out. Uh, I, I haven't seen very aggressive sort of campaigns of information campaigns and the thing that kieran was describing earlier about the, the complex system uh of like like just the amount of information the amount of people involved in making the decisions i think is like uh so it of seems to be like the, the the center is kind of the central problem for the designers like uh how, how do you how do you make sense of all this new information information that we don't even have yet and how do you you know uh keep people sort of like on the kind of calm side of worried, you know. Yeah,
1: it's that it's that tonal piece, Mark, I think that you're touching on is the difficult yeah. thing. It's it's getting that right tonality because on one hand, people are looking for the reassurance, as I was saying, of authority. And what's very interesting actually in terms of one of the things that we're interested in is the relationship between the citizen and the state. That is there's a reciprocosity within that, you know, there's the social contract in terms of how that works. And there's a degree of trust that goes both ways. Does the government trust that when it it says, we don't know, when I say the government, I'm not talking about a political party. I'm talking about that permanent, ongoing entity. We're not quite sure, but this is our best thinking. Tell us more. Give us some degree of certainty. Well, we can't, but if we were to guess, we would say that it's this. And when the government trusts that either the various different divisions or parties or that the public... We'll take that on trust and kind of go, we know it's a changing situation. There was an openness to that in the earlier days of the pandemic. So it's a two-way thing. We are communicating with you and we trust that you will understand that things may change uh, and that we will get things wrong. And then as it has evolved and moved over time and people start to look at other jurisdictions, you now get into that comparative uh, kind of mindset and that trust starts saying, well, we don't know if we trust you anymore. Because other people are doing other things and they seem more certain than you seem. And that then causes the person who's sending out the information to maybe communicate less often with less transparency. And so there's always this tension of trying to maintain trust on both sides. Do you trust the receiver just as much as do you trust the sender? And I think uh, when organisations are in positions of authority, they can be very nervous about losing that perception. And that's the the line you're trying to walk.
0: For sure. And I think you're right in saying that when, you know, You're comparing yourselves to literally almost every other country in the world. It gets hard, you know, and kind of looking at, The cool kids in Australia getting to do this, 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 it makes it a lot harder as well. Um, But going back to yourself, Mark, your work is entirely devoted to storytelling and communication. And as part of your exhibit in the Science Gallery in Detroit, you used a design methodology called Future Parfait. Is it Parfait or Parfait? Yeah, Parfait. Future Parfait. So what exactly is that? Tell me and why is it important for society? Uh, Future Parfait is, I guess,
2: okay, like a speculative design slash world building project. So uh, in a nutshell, it's kind of like a, if you are just be kind of ap- like radically optimistic and kind of survey the planet for all of our best solutions to like our hardest problems and then try to assemble a culture from that, what would that look like? So that's what Future Parfait is. Kind of a response. It was definitely a response. Say like, um, I went through a period, say like in the early 2000s, where it was like apocalypse time. It was like Y2K, bird flu. Um, you know, we got SARS in Toronto. It's just like, you know, the like the the globalization is happening. So you know, apocalypses are happening faster. So I got in this sort of loop of like, oh my god, all this stuff. Um, what's going on? And then um, got out of it by reading the other side. Um, there was this one podcast by the Long Now Foundation, Paul Hawken. So he, and he, in that podcast, uh, it's called the Great Transformation. He just, he just kind of catalogs all of the kind of NGO activity, all the nonprofit activity, all the kind of do-gooders in the world, and uh, the numbers are astounding. It is like a, there's like a, a huge bureaucratic army out there working for the greater good. So, so that that helped a lot, and then. Also kind of coming to terms with uh, things like the human mind, our negativity bias, you know, we, we tend to attach to the threats, the survival threats. So putting all those things into perspective and just realizing that, yes, we need positive visions to move towards because, right, you know, 10 years ago or whatever, five years ago, there was very few any like plausible uh, movement, like uh, utopian vision, say. It was like, even now, it's mostly dystopian. If you look around, people are still caught up in like the disaster side. So Future Parfait came from just like a, an intentional response to that, to try to produce a positive vision. So uh, for Science Gallery Detroit, um, so, I, you know, I've been I've been just kind of cataloging and cultivating this uh, this sort of these sort of different ideas and concepts to, that go into Future Parfait. For the Science Gallery Detroit, I kind of proposed like a, a, a megacity in the Detroit region. I mean, I could go into the ideas. It's just it's, it's kind of like there's a lot to it. But I. Uh, uh, but in terms of this, uh, what we're talking about now, in terms of communication and design, um, I, I'm a graphic. I start. I kind. Of, I went to school for architecture, and uh, but I kind of went became a cartoonist. So my um my kind of preferred mode of communication is sequential images, drawing. And so in terms of world building and speculative design, uh, comics are really excellent because uh, you know comics is like a it's like a film on paper in a sense. that like you can kind of build a three D environment. You can. You can build out emotions. You can um, you can explore sort of ideas in ways that uh, non visual ways, non visual modes cannot. So um, that's where I'm coming from, and it helps. in terms of world building, like uh, I guess the way most people create the world is kind of through visual stimulus, like build it up. And I guess without going into the kind of the, the ideas and concepts in the future parfait work, the the point is that I think we need a really uh, intentional kind of like a positive focus when we look towards the future at the moment because that's the only way we'll kinda of get to that uh outcome. And I think uh yeah, design and visual communication has a huge role to play in that. Um and and in a sense like the COVID pandemic sort of like uh really I think provides some a lot of learning and also a number of opportunities uh, for kind of us to advance, you know, towards a better world even even though it seems as though like this thing is like, you know, everything's coming apart at the moment.
0: We'll take a short break, but we'll be back right after the Futurecast with Lucas Gavi to chat about what exactly makes good design.
3: Welcome to the audio guided tour of the COVID-19 Memorial Museum. Here we have a curated collection of various artworks in response to the 2020 pandemic original ephemera designed from the period and images documenting this monumentous epoch in history. As you enter the foyer of the museum, the first piece that greets you is the Hall of Measures. This interactive installation uses almost 3,000 square feet of glass to create a complex maze and was designed by German architect Hans Annetizer. You will be prompted to enter individually by our museum staff in one-minute intervals. As you make your way into the maze, you will soon find yourself surrounded by others, yet completely isolated. Although you will be able to see other people, the closest you will be able to physically come to them is two meters. This piece attempts to emulate the experience of navigating public spaces throughout the COVID-19 pandemic through replicating the routine cues that one had to persevere, but also by enforcing the recommended safe distance that people had to maintain from one another to avoid possible contamination. The next room we will move on to is the virology room. Here, we have a comprehensive collection of all the discovered and contained variants of the coronavirus, enclosed in an array of Petri dishes. Please feel free to take your time here and use our electron microscopes to see the hidden beauty behind this disastrous virus. As we enter the central atrium of the museum, we see Sandra Bottachanko's The Birth of Virus. This 30 foot tall, horrendously exaggerated sculpture shows a nude figure made decent by a significantly long tuft of particularly curly hair the figure is flanked by two members of the animal kingdom a bat and a pangolin the three grossly oversized characters are intertwined in a harmonic interpretive dance seemingly innocent the artist intends to highlight the often naive nature of humankind and how the covid 19 virus may have been initially passed onto our species to the left of the central atrium you will find our photography room Here we have curated a multitude of photographs from various photographers of the period, both professional and amateur. These images capture the pandemic's DIY physical distancing architecture, desolate public spaces, closed businesses, and documentation of various anti-mask and conspiracy theorist protests and demonstrations. To the right of the central atrium, you can find the room containing ephemera from the period itself, Here, we see the designs created to help inform and educate the general public on the safety measures put in place by governments and health experts internationally in order to help curtail the spread of the virus. We also see advertisements by various different governmental organisations internationally to help promote the importance of being vaccinated. As we extend our tour into the final room of the museum, we see a clever piece by an anonymous advertising agency. During the COVID-19 pandemic, sales for Corona Beer plummeted exponentially. However, this creative advertising agency created a satirical ad campaign for this missed opportunity, which, if implemented, may have saved Corona Beer by reversing the decrease in sales and perhaps even boosting their social status. The ad itself depicts an image of a bottle of Corona Beer with the slogan, ignore your subconscious association, We're still a great beer. And on that note, our tour has unfortunately come to an end. If you continue through the back room, you will find our gift shop, where you can purchase an assortment of COVID-19 t-shirts, key rings and fridge magnets. We hope you enjoyed your visit to the COVID-19 Memorial Museum.
0: Now we're coming into part two, and I'll put this out to both of you, but um, what is your key to achieving good design? And I guess what examples of good design have stuck with you over the years? We'll start with yourself, Kieran.
1: I mean, the thing is design, design operates at so many different levels. I mean, there's some wonderful design that as Mark's talking about there is just image making. It's, it's not about form following function. It's, it's about form inspiring potential. And I think that there's loads of wonderful work, you know, in that space. And that can fall into theatre posters. It can fall into, you only have to be a teenager to have a litany of favourite designs. Uh, And some of those are designs that are not maybe overly explicit. So I'm of a certain age, so I like Joy Division. uh, And therefore the cover of Unknown Pleasures uh, for me was just something that i got lost in it didn't feel technological it felt like an imaginary space you know so i would have started out uh, studying product design before taking the route to where i am now in terms of visual communication. so so there's design that fuels the imagination, creates new possibilities, the type of work that mark does that that just becomes expansive. and then there's the design in the day-to-day that that makes life easier, that helps people uh, do what they need to do and i like work that operates as a systemic level. you know, there's work that was done in the in the national health service in the uk through using good information design to stop people fighting and attacking doctors in A&E by them just knowing what's kind of going on and what's helping. There's a lot of work that we've done in healthcare in America, in places like Omaha or North Carolina, that is helping older people with chronic illnesses feel more at ease within health environments. And in some ways, that's by designing things to look less designed. I love, you know, wallpaper designs can be beautiful, but people don't think about them as being functional. We could do a list of favorite designers and design works, but I I find it very hard to pin. So I'm probably not answering your question very well.
0: But no, you gave me a good answer nonetheless. (laughs) Um, Okay, well, what about yourself, Mark? Is Is this a possible thing to be able to answer?
2: Well, like like uh Kieran said, it's a it's a huge question. like a big topic, like but so we focus in on like uh say responses to COVID that were kind of interesting or I mean, I don't know if it's good or bad, but let's we can talk about like uh say like in the public parks in Toronto, they were drawing circles and you know, to get people to sit in these circles so that then in the next, you know, they'd draw another circle ten meters away. That to me I felt like I like that. It was sort of like a generous offer from the city. It's like use the parks, uh, but just be safe. And it was sort of like it's not obtrusive. Like no one has to put a sign up to say this is what how you use it. It's kind of pretty obvious how it operates. That, that's a good that's a sign of good design. Like in, the, in, your, in your introduction, you kind of said uh, it should be invisible until you need it in a way. Like, I think that's how if you can category design, um, that's one. That would be one kind of uh, way of defining good design. You don't see it until you need it. And then when you need it, it's right there and you don't have to think about using it too much. I think uh, I was really appreciated when I don't have I don't know the website, but I do know like in in America, uh, in the U.S., they didn't have a national COVID kind of dashboard. Uh, So there's actually a couple of private uh, academics and researchers made their own dashboard for the whole country. I thought that was, um, in terms of design and COVID, I think that was a really a, like a great response, like you know, private individuals for the uh, working for the public good, trying to spread uh, information that people can trust. So that's also, I think, maybe a good uh, example of a design response in the pandemic that I think was effective and like could you could use a lot more of that. I think even like with for Kieran like. I feel like I feel like uh, yeah, that communicate like the government should have its own communication branch. Like you know, it's kind of weird that it doesn't. Like it, this should almost be like they should they should prioritize communication.
1: It's it's something that uh, is really really difficult because public communication and political spin in many people's minds are seen as this. Are they seen fairly or unfairly as the same thing? Yeah. you know so. What we were very proud of is is the identity system that came in across government. What's interesting in terms of how, what the pandemic is, is throwing up in a way is perceptions of value between the state and private. A few years ago, people were saying that anything to do with the state is backward and irrelevant. And we need to be all like private companies like Google. And actually, the narrative has shifted about where people are really understanding, actually, that they are citizens within a system that uh, when you engage with a properly, can have a degree of accountability and transparency. And I love, you know, as you're talking there, Mark, about the public parks, you know, they're civic public amenities. And in Ireland... Because of the lockdown restrictions, people are really embracing that. And actually the design of all these wonderful playgrounds and spaces that before might have been semi-neglected are now totally embraced and loved. Uh, One of the things that was being done in some ways in the early days of pandemic When you see the the apocalyptic films, it's that people start hoarding, get guns and shoot their neighbours to protect their territory, where people had this opportunity to look in on neighbours that they maybe hadn't spoken to before, to go and collect shopping and to do things and to be able to really feel like a citizen in a country that needed them. Um, And what's going to be really interesting is, is there was resistance to introducing a government identity system, which all it was was consistency of typography, clarity of information, those kinds of things. Whereas we see private companies co-opting the look of government material in order to assume a degree of trust. So there's some interesting kind of dynamics taking place between uh, what people look to. You know, a few years ago, people thought, well, I trust stuff on Facebook because it's authentic, because it's individuals. Whereas at the start of the the pandemic people were looking to governments to try and filter out the news from the noise.
0: Mm. And I guess while we're with you Kieran how does good design impact society and overall well-being of citizens? I'm sure like we have you know definitely touched on this already in what you've been chatting about but yeah,
1: I mean it's a curious one. Uh, when I was starting out in design I went to work in Holland because I was very interested in the relationship between society and design and You know, Holland is a country that wouldn't exist if they didn't have design in the form of engineering. They'd all be drowned because it's all under you know sea level. And also it's the inverse of how Mark is describing Canada. They have three times the population of Ireland compressed into, you know, a lot smaller size. And therefore, design is used as a as a form of you could say social lubricant in a sense in that it's about the efficiency and the delivery. But uh, there's a very thin line between design as, you know, they've the best looking uh, police vehicles in the world, the way they're designed. They've got, you know, they invest a lot in design in terms of government services, service design, not just the look and feel. I think that there's an element there where the role that it plays, it needs to focus on the interaction rather than the appearance. And I think that, you know, there's various different models of design And in the early stages, commissioners of design only care about how something looks. What was very interesting about working in Holland is it started to move into aspects of service design. Uh, Gov.uk, if I was to to point an example of really good public service design, gov.uk in England is an excellent piece of very complex online service delivery between government and citizens. So I think it's about how it makes life easier. And part of the difficulty is, is that in less mature design environments, it's just associated with advertising and spin and promotion. So it's about how the actual system matures to understand that it's more than just a veneer.
0: And what do you think, Mark?
1: Um, Well, I would like to agree with Kieran in that uh, separating
2: kind of design from marketing is really important. Like that capitalist impulse is totally manipulative and kind of exploitive in a lot of ways. So um, separating those two is important. and then yeah i think what what he was saying about uh the netherlands and their approach to design and how that uh design kind of went right into the how the society organized itself even how it sort of maintained itself physically i think like i was saying if i were to make a comparison between uh say even ireland the netherlands and then to canada um we don't really have that i like in terms of, like I was saying, the design design culture here is sort of like people aren't educated enough to really. I'm sorry, this is a real terrible generalization, but it's like uh, folks don't really know, like, uh, what good architecture is in general. Like, it's just not part of our cultural education. I think in Europe, especially in Italy, I know it's like it's right in. It's like you learn that from the get go. How can design benefit society? I think, um, but what Karen was saying about thinking about how the government interacts with the people. Is and how how to how to kind of make that relationship more fluid yeah i i can't say from experience that canada does have excellent bureaucracy like the government the ontario government uh you know processes canadian government processes are pretty pretty modern and streamlined i've been i've lived in india i've lived in sort of france and comparing them are like they're really different so i really appreciate having to update my driver's license in canada so as opposed to doing it in france or somewhere like that like so that's a way design can help, uh, like the way the processes are designed, the way citizens can move through their daily life without too much feeling as though the government's just you know getting in the way all the time.
0: And I guess trust and transparency are also key factors to consider, especially when it comes to public health. Um. So how do you engage with like stakeholders and general public to ensure that the visual messaging is transparent and easy to understand?
1: I think that's just about always being sensitive to who's receiving the message, not always assuming that people are the same as you either culturally or physically in terms of how they're able to receive things uh, and and modulating that it's a conversation not a broadcast and i think when you start to look at information and communication design as being a conversation which it is more within the digital realm where it's more immediate we think of it less that way in more traditional media but once you start to think about that you can only have a good conversation when you're listening and I think it's about having those elements. And it's as Mark's saying, it's trying to separate out design from marketing activity. And, and I think that that's a very difficult one. Sometimes if, if you're communicating and people are getting the message that you want them to hear, there'll be some people who might not be happy that that's been received well. And that's the nature of democratic discourse and different points of view.
0: And just assuming people know what you're talking about already.
1: Yeah, and it's context, context, context. Listen, listen, listen.
0: And I guess on that note, creative storytelling acts as a driver for movements, like the jumper that was worn on people throughout Ireland in the lead up to the referendum to repeal the eighth, to even the use of the black squares on Instagram to support Black Lives Matter. So, what kind of tools? Um, what kind of tools are required to create projects like this that impact on a national and global scale?
2: I'd say that's a mystery. I don't think anyone ever plans for that black box to go viral globally. It's that's like a that's like a global mind emerging, and it, that's the kind of thing. I think is sort of hard to predict, other than the fact that it's, it's kind of ethically correct, you know, the right thing to do in a way. But um, I don't, yeah, I don't know how you design for that.
1: I think it's more of a branding question than a design question. In that uh, is how I would would respond to that, in the sense that what you see with each of those. Whether it is a hashtag or whether it's some kind of visual mnemonic like extinction, you know, um, extinction rebellion. I think that what you're doing with, with some of those types of brand approaches, you're creating an empty vessel. The vessel has enough structure and form that there's an idea that it defines. But enough. there's enough scope within it that people can see themselves within it. And so this is the difference between, say, detailed information design and brand building, where you are saying, OK, we want something to become a flag or a totem. That is not something that become, that is pre-filled with very fixed and defined meanings. You're putting things out there. And I mean, one of the difficulties with that is that things can be very easily co-opted. And that the church can become so wide that some of the originators feel that the true integrity of the element is lost. But what that is, is it is serendipity. Um You don't know who's going to pick up the vessel and fill it, but it's that idea that you have a brand concept, an idea that exists in people's minds that's simple enough, and you're putting out the right device, whether it's a visual device, a hashtag, a word, a phrase that people then co-opt, associate additional meanings to.
2: I really like that idea of uh, that symbol as being a vessel, not really being a flag, but it has to be it has to, it has to be able to absorb uh, the you know people's interests and beliefs, their own. Uh, value systems and and represent that that's yeah
1: and black lives matter um and those types of uh, symbols and narratives uh, tend to be trying to create a sense of inclusion when you look at the co-op like you got fred perry the brand fred perry have a real challenge on their hands because you have the proud boys in america co-opting that brand as a fascist symbol and you see some symbols And again, that's it's an empty vessel. It's got a particular shape to it. Uh, It kind of relates back to skinhead culture from maybe the 80s, which itself started out as a multiracial thing, but then mutated into something else. But what you'll see is that the Proud Boys has been used as an exclusionary symbol, as a uniform, where other kind of movements are creating a narrative which is creating that space of inclusivity. And we would have seen that in things like the Yes campaign and these narratives that in some ways are celebrating plurality rather than zoning in to become a kind of exclusionary identity. Those elements that actually speak to plurality and actually celebrate a broader church um, can often get a greater degree of virality than those that are actually exclusionary and providing an icon that becomes a uniform.
0: And I guess visual communication will play an essential role uh, in the and I didn't really until talking to you guys and even preparing for this podcast you know I I get it's again it was you know you're talking about being invisible you know, invisible design and that's what, you know, I've been observing for so long and it's fascinating to hear, you know, you talk about the meanings behind everything. But like I said, visual communication will play an essential role in the coming year, obviously with, uh, you know, restrictions beginning to ease. Do you have any suggestions for effectively using design in the safe transition back to society?
2: muck i think the most important thing right now for people to know is just sort of like uh kind of how to behave in the next two years in next year next 12 months say like as people get vaccinated as things open up like i feel as though keeping up public education about how uh you know just your behavior and uh and and keeping up with um it's almost like viruses viral you know pandemic best practices but in, in terms of the bigger picture of opening up in general is uh I'm not sure. Are, do you have any are you working on anything Kieran right now? Like
1: Oh well, I, I think I think what's really interesting actually um in terms of the way in which the science gallery have curated this talk Mark with yourself and myself is I'm on the call because I do information graphics which is all type of for the government and that is about providing a degree of instruction in the main part. And what it was lovely listening to you at the start of this podcast talking about what you do is in terms of imagined futures and the way in which sequential art and image making actually starts to give us a sense of reshaping the future. Now, we're talking about this pandemic as being a once in a lifetime moment that will have a similar kind of rupture to World War One or World War II. And we saw an emergence of a sense of a utopian ideal after World War One. And that requires people to imagine that. And people have been demanding a sense of change, say, in response to climate and sustainability and those types of elements. And I think the instructions will look after themselves. I think that there's the opportunity to start leaning into this conversation around imagining what will change. So we have a studio of 16 people that are working at the moment. Some have gone back home to Cairo, others are working in Antwerp, others are various different places around uh, Ireland and Dublin. We want to come back together physically and enjoy each other's company, but we don't want to return to the expectations of how we might have worked uh, before the pandemic. So the visualisation and the extension of this social change and the imagining of that and the celebrating of that is, I think, a really important element as it moves away from the centralised control of government and back into people saying, now that we have our freedom, now what? And I think there's a really interesting, it's the creative rather than, say, the systemic side of, of design and creativity, is, I think, going to start to flourish?
2: Um, to, to that point, I think it, it actually is. Uh, just as a side note, uh, something that really kind of warmed my heart over the winter was the UN uh, Participatory Futures Conference. Um, so United Nations kind of held a conference in uh, December, uh, just about uh, kind of, about speculative futures and the participatory future. So the idea is like futurists, people who are trying to imagine the future and kind of build it out, uh, realize that everyone needs to be involved in that. Like it's not not a silo for experts. It's like, because that future is going to look different for every person. Last December, the UN held a... participatory futures conference and kind of revealed like a a, like a really again like a a large population of really well small for the world but bigger than i thought it would be community of people who are actually doing this they're they're training to work with communities on how to think about the community's futures like there's countless workshops right now that you can sign up for um to train you on how to work with your community to help them visualize their future. And I think that type of work, kind of keeping in mind the lessons of the pandemic, is sort of something that could be really valuable in the next 12 months in terms of like, you know, there's a big shakeup. we got to change something. Now's the time to kind of put that idea in people's heads on a larger scale so that uh, the kind of the, the larger changes can happen.
1: And I don't think governments and large organizations can say anymore that fundamental systemic change is not possible
2: yeah oh yeah 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 just the way uh
1: the work from home thing happened overnight basically we're capable of more change than we give ourselves credit for yeah
2: yeah
0: yeah
2: that's what the homo sapiens are famous for
0: (laughs) (laughs) exactly on that note guys thank you so much for joining me today on this chat it was fascinating to talk to you both um and thank you everyone for listening i hope you learned something really really interesting from both my guests today thanks guys
1: Thank you for listening to this podcast by Science Gallery at Trinity College Dublin, which is part of the Science Gallery International Network. We are kindly supported by Accenture, ICON and Intel Ireland. We also receive government support from the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, Gaeltacht, Sport and Media and Science Foundation Ireland. Find out more at dublin.sciencegallery.com.